Good morning. I am not uh, Miriam. Uh, she was not feeling well this morning, so I'm, I'm pinch inning. Uh, so we're going to be reading out of Luke uh, chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 51 this morning. So let's read from the Word of God. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into, the, into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he, then he and his disciples went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Well, I certainly want to thank all of you for your presence. As, as you no doubt can, can tell, uh, even if you're not uh, privy to all that's going, going on necessarily, uh, there's, we've had some, what, what, what should we call it, discombobulations, I would say, uh, uh, today. Uh, we have a number of people that are traveling. It's that time of year. Uh, uh, Kyle and Alexandra and family are down in Florida coming back now. Uh, Jason and his family are out in, uh, in uh, California, and, and so forth. And Emily, who uh, normally uh, leads our, the music part of our worship, is uh, they're out at the, uh, at the, the cabin with uh, the, the whole uh, small group that they, that they lead. Uh, she and, and Steve and others in their, their group and are having a retreat today. And so we want to pray for them and realize that a substantial part of our congregation is there uh, suffering greatly out in that mountain retreat uh, place and uh, so forth. So we want to pray for their, their suffering and, uh, and all of that. Uh, we hope that it's going just wonderfully. I'm sure it, sure it is and, and so forth. And uh, this morning, I want to thank all of those who stepped up to, to help the praise team and uh, that uh, did such a, a wonderful job. Thank you, Carl, for that a, a powerful prayer. And, and Gonzo, you know, the, the, if you look on the worship service, you see their communion. And you go over where the name should be, and there's not a name there. Uh, I had assumed that a name had been chosen, but that just had not been gotten into the printing. Uh, but when the time came, there was not one there, and Gonzo stepped up uh, and, uh, and did it, as well as the announcements, and I really, really uh, uh, appreciate that very, uh, very, very much. So uh, we're, I, I do want to just add my word, if I can, about the, the retreat. Uh, we're, uh, as I said last time, we're going to be focusing on... Uh, the Gospel of John, especially chapter 15, where it says, I am the vine and you are the branches, and so forth. And uh, so I urge you to read that, read the section all around it from John chapter thir uh, 13 through 17. And, uh, and the next two weeks, 
of our messages will be focused on, uh, on John 15. So we're going to be doing some preparation, thinking uh, about that scripture. That's not to say that it'll be by any means the same as what's at, at the retreat, uh, but it will lay kind of some groundwork uh, for that. So I hope that you'll come and share that, do your own meditation and reflection, uh, all, all of that um, as, as we uh, prepare for the retreat. And one other word, um, well, two other words. I, I really want to urge all of those who are new here, who have moved to New York or visiting New York even, you know, for a period, short, relatively short period of time, if you can possibly... Um, uh, go to and participate in the retreat. We would we would love it. We want to to gather together as much as possible. It's a great time for getting to know each other and spending uh, time together, both studying the Word of God and sharing our own stories and our our own journey in in all of that. And please, um, you know, I know we're all over the map as far as the effects of COVID uh, over a period of time, and some of that is financial. Do not let uh, the cost of it on any level um, uh, stop you. If you're having any sort of uh, trouble with the, the cost, uh, just let us know. Go ahead and register, and uh, we will take care of that. We can help with, with, with all of that. A bus will be available. Even that also, you know, just get on the bus and, and go out there and uh, share in that, that time from Friday evening until Sunday uh, after the time of, of worship, Sunday noon. So I uh, just thank all of you for, for doing that. One other word that I, I heard, and I did not hear details about it, but I heard as I was coming in uh, this morning, uh, Rick and Radica Torres, uh, the, uh, Rick's mother, Gertrude, very uh, elderly, up, up in many, many years, past 100 uh, passed away. Uh, I don't know exactly the details of, of all of that, but we want to keep Rick and Radica uh, Torres in our prayers at this time. They've cared for her for a long time, and just an amazing woman uh, as she as she aged and aged and aged, this rich, full life, long life, and was such a blessing in this congregation for for so many years. Well, uh, uh, you heard uh, the, the scripture read. I, I hope that you have a copy of the, the sheet of, that has that, the, the scripture uh, on it in my, my own translation and, and has several, quite a few other scriptures along with that that I'll be um, uh, at least pointing to uh, this morning as we, as we go along and looking at. So to have that and, and to be able to to share uh, with that. I really uh, would appreciate that. If you don't have a copy of those notes, please hold up your hand and someone will, I hope, bring you uh, a copy of them from the back. Um, the text today, this passage that um, uh, from Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62, um, maybe the first thing to say about it is that it's a challenging text. It's it's, a challenging, it's challenging on just about any level that one might, wants to imagine. And uh, I want to also say right from the start that, that the, the challenge is intended. It's intended to be at certain points, not throughout all of it, but at certain points, puzzling, difficult, even hard to take. 
some of the things that uh, Jesus says are hard to understand here. You know, when he, when he says, leave it to the dead to bury their own dead. You follow, you, pre you preach the kingdom of God and so forth. They are hard to understand. Jesus intended them to be. Luke recognized the di that difficulty, and he doesn't do anything to soften, to soften it and to help us and give nice explanations uh, about all of this. He, he wants us to feel them without some winsome uh, description of what this all means and so forth. He does, however, try to point us to resources that can sharpen our perception. Remember, as Luke is writing a gospel, all of the, the things that he's telling about have happened quite a long time ago. The people that he's writing about, many of them, especially the disciples, have already, many of them died for their faith already. And, um, but he is concerned about those who read the gospel in his own time and on beyond that, right on down to this group. We were in uh, Luke's concern all the, all the way along. And so um, as, we, as we go into this to think about uh, the meaning of all that, and that's part of what we want to, to do this morning. The setting of the, the text is what we talked about already last week. Jesus has been carrying on his amazing ministry in Galilee, and Luke has described it in, in wonderful ways. It started really, one could say, in chapter 4, verse 14, when he comes into Galilee, uh, empowered by the Spirit, teaching about the kingdom of God, and it goes down through uh, the verse right before our text today, chapter 9, verse 50. Uh, this is the point, chapter 9, verse 51, at, at which things turn, and we go in a, in a different direction. We included 951 in the text for last week as kind of a, a hinge text that we, uh, we wanted to, to uh, uh, link together. Uh, Jesus has been proclaiming this inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the God's rule over God's world in God's world. <clears throat> it's for that very thing that he has been anointed by God's spirit to proclaim the good news to the poor. <clears throat> That's how it all starts as Jesus goes into the synagogue in, in Nazareth and reads the scripture there, and it tells about what he's, he's uh, about to do, to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captives, the year of the Lord's welcome. And so he reads uh, this passage, Isaiah 58, Isaiah 61, and tells them, today this scripture has been filled full, Luke 4, 21. So as signs of that life-giving power of God in God's kingdom, Jesus has healed throngs of people, people with hopeless diseases. He's cast out uncontrollable, destructive powers, what are called daimonia, uh, all the way through here. He has welcomed the excluded, the tax collectors and the sinners, the lepers, the ritually unclean. He's assembled disciples from the most ordinary levels of society. He has forgiven sins, like God forgives sins, things that could, were supposed to happen only in, in the temple in Jerusalem. He's confronted authoritative teachers. And on and on it goes as we've, we've watched it as, uh, as we've studied the Gospel of Luke. He has even rebuked and stopped a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he has given dead children back alive to their parents. 
His disciples, I, I don't think it's too much to say, are thrilled by him. They're devoted to him. They've even experienced times when Jesus allowed them to participate, sent them out on limited missions to participate in the life-giving power of God to heal and to restore. They've come to recognize that in Jesus, all of their own, all of Israel's ancient hopes expressed in the scriptures, the hopes of an anointed king, a messiah, were coming to be. They had become, they are a reality right before their eyes. But <clears throat> also with those disciples, not all has been well. Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Not all has, has, been, uh, has been well. Um, every time these disciples who follow Jesus, many of whom, have, have, as it says, they have left everything to follow Jesus, every time they've tried to put their new perception into words, they've fumbled. Peter confesses Jesus as God's anointed king. We say, yay! Luke says Jesus rebuked them and told them not to say a word to anybody about it. When three of them see Jesus along with Moses and Elijah in what we usually call the transfiguration, Peter fumbles out words about building three tabernacles and Luke tells us that he doesn't know what he's saying. What's worse as we've seen repeatedly, Jesus has spoken to them about his coming suffering, death, and rising. The disciples have no idea what he, God's anointed king, can possibly mean by such talk. And indeed, as we saw last time, they become fearful even to ask him about it. But now a new adventure begins. Jesus solemnly announces, it seems, to a large group of followers that he has determined to leave Galilee and go to Jerusalem. And it's in the context of that new focus toward Jerusalem, which, of course, we've read to the end of the gospel and maybe the end of all of the gospels, know what's at stake in getting to Jerusalem. But they don't. Many, there are, at this particular point when Jesus announces this, there are lots of things that, that Luke might have recounted to describe the beginning of this journey to Jerusalem. But he chooses to give us these particular things that we have in our scripture text uh, today so that we, as we read the gospel, can perceive some of what's at stake in this turning point. Luke tells four, in our text, four rather surprising incidents. First, he describes Jesus' messengers being sent out and then being turned away by a village of Samaritans. Samaria, if you, if you remember, is a section of, the, of the, the whole area that lies directly south of Galilee and on the direct line toward Jerusalem, the direct road. Then, he, he, after uh, telling about them sending, him sending out messengers to these, uh, this vill these villages of Samaritans, he tells about three unnamed people who all want to follow Jesus as disciples as he sets out on the journey. But they receive surprising, even disturbing responses from Jesus. Now, 
I want to kind of take a little break in this here and, and go look at this from a kind of different point of view than I usually do, just for, for the interest of understanding something about, about the Gospels. There, there are many ways in which these stories are interesting, and I'd, I'd like to make just a few observation if you don't, uh, observations, if you don't mind, that show us how Luke goes about writing the Gospel and how different elements help to interpret what the gospel is uh, is all about. I, I myself think it's important to see what the gospels themselves show us about how Luke and the other writers, Matthew, Mark, John, uh, approach the task of writing the story of Jesus. And um, I, I want to start not, not going into depth into it, but just that looking at a couple of, of sections. First, the latter part of our of our text, this, the story of the three are the three stories about potential disciples. As Luke tells us in the first verse of the gospel, if you go all the way back to the beginning, he describes in his little prologue that how the stories about Jesus had been handed down, told and retold from the memories of many people who had encountered Jesus. Obviously from the twelve, from Jesus' family, from many disciples who followed Jesus from people who were healed by Jesus, no doubt, or at, who were there at various events in his life. Luke, for example, uh, himself, is, uh, as, one, as an example of one of the, the gospel writers, is writing probably, my best guess, is something like 35 to 45 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. He's been a believer in Jesus for many years, a lot of scholars, when they read Luke, they think he's a Gentile. I don't know for sure, but it's poss certainly possible that he's a Gentile. He's been, but he's been teaching and preaching about Jesus for maybe 20 to 30 of those years before he writes the gospel. The other gospel writers, especially Matthew and Mark, are similar. There's no way to calculate how many hundreds of times in teaching and preaching Luke has told the many scores of individual stories about Jesus that make up his gospel. But when it comes to writing a gospel, as over against just preaching and telling people about Jesus, he has been inspired by reading Mark's gospel. Mark wrote, wrote his gospel, and both Matthew and Luke, I genuinely believe, had a copy of it probably right in front of them as they're writing. But the incidents in our text today are not in Mark's gospel. They're not in Mark's narrative. Luke knew many memories about Jesus that Mark did not, had not included in his gospel when he got a copy of it and read it. In spite of the fact that Luke loved Mark's gospel and uses it extensively in writing his own, as, as does Matthew too. And, and part of why he wrote his gospel was to include some of these other memories about Jesus, stories that he no doubt himself has told, that he's heard from others, that he's used in preaching and so forth over and over again across the years as he's taught, taught people. Maybe he's read, maybe there are collections that are written down, all kinds of possibilities that we just simply have very little access to. But um, he wants to include these striking interactions of Jesus with people who wanted to follow him. And especially when you come to our, our text, you have these these astonishing say, sayings, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place, nowhere to lay his head. Or, you know, <laughs> leave, the dead, leave it to the dead to bury their own dead. 
but you start proclaiming the kingdom of God and so on. When we read the Gospel of Matthew, however, we find in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and you can look this up in one of those Bibles that's on in the, in the rack in front of you, that the first two of these stories are also told in the Gospel of Matthew. And one, one of the things that one notices is that they were clearly remembered in, 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 to some degree in the very same wording of the stories that in Matthew and in Luke, not entirely, but to some extent. But notice that the names of the disciples who were volunteering to follow Jesus were not remembered. Nor was the exact time when these in, uh, encounters occurred. Just they, fo they focused on the sayings themselves. So both Luke and Matthew know about these. They told these stories, these striking words of Jesus. But each, when it comes to write, writing their own gospel, has to decide where to put them. They simply do not know. Luke tells the three stories here so as to help us understand the serious choices for disciples when Jesus left Galilee and set his face toward Jerusalem to confront the temple. But if you go back to Matthew, the 8th chapter, at verse 18 through 22, where, where you find the parallel to this story, you find that they're set in a much earlier context, in the midst of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Matthew tells us that when great crowds surrounded Jesus in, in the town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus decided to cross the sea. And uh, that implied the question, who's going to go with Jesus? Who's, who are his disciples who are going to cross the sea with him? And Matthew chose that situation as a meaningful place to include the two volunteer disciples. It was on that voyage across the lake, Matthew tells us, that Jesus stilled the storm that we have in different contexts here in the Gospel of Luke. Only many chapters later, over in chapter 19, verse 1, does Matthew tell us about Jesus leaving Galilee to go to Jerusalem. The gospel writers sometimes knew that no one had remembered the exact sequence of events. And they knew that they were free to place the incidents in their narrative where they would help them to illuminate what was happening with Jesus' words. And that's just something to keep in mind, that this is part of, it did not bother them, it didn't bother the early church. Nobody sat down and tried to do an edit of Matthew and, and uh, Luke and get them, make sure that they get them in all these things in the same spot. They just left them there in the Gospels and we read them side by side in different contexts as we read Matthew and Luke without bothering God or bothering the Gospel writers or bothering the early church. The but then also there are other ways that Luke helps us to understand the text. Part the, 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 uh, the, the disciples, we understand it by where Luke places it at this turning point in Jesus' life. But another way that he, that he helps us to understand takes us into the first part of our, of our text. Though in those first verses, he, he helps us to, to understand the, the text sort of by the way he tells the story, the style, if you read those first verses, especially if you read them in a very literal translation like I've provided there on your sheet, uh, it, it seems rather loaded and rather hell, heavy and, 
and maybe even awkward. I'm, I'm going to read it in, in that translation there, Luke 9, 51 to 53, right at the beginning of our text. And it happened, as the days were reaching completion for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face firmly to go to journey to Jerusalem. And he sent out messengers. And the word that's used for messengers here is the word angelos in, in Greek. If you recognize that word, it comes down into English as angels. And so angels are messengers, but it can also mean other kinds of messengers. He sent out messengers before his face, is what it says. And when they went out, they entered a village of Samaritans, so as to make preparations for Jesus. But the people didn't welcome him because his face was journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, Luke's mind and memory and heart were filled with the language of Scripture. And of course, he knew that, like, just like we know the Scriptures in English, because we speak English and we read it in English, he was a Greek speaker and he knew the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So he used those scriptures in Greek. That's his native language. And a phrase, for example, that like begins this text, it's one that often gets dropped in, trans in translation into English because it doesn't make too much sense even in English as a, as a part of the thing. Like, and it happened, is totally unnecessary in, in Greek. But it's a phrase that you find over and over and over again in the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament because it corresponds to a little idiom in Hebrew and gets translated this way. And he, and he knows those, Hebrew, those Greek phrases that, that say, this is Bible language. And Luke loves it and he uses it. it it's, it's like us... In so many of our songs, especially those of a certain age, that use thee, use thee and thou and all of those that language of the King James Version in, in writing the poetry for the, the lyrics for the song. You'll notice that in the translation that I read, uh, that I did, the word face occurs three times. It's the Greek word prosopon. But none of these occurrences is a normal use of the Greek word prosopon, meaning face. Again, they reflect the phraseology of the Hebrew scriptures, translated into Greek. Without ever citing, quoting, giving a scripture, chapter and verse, as it were, uh, any passage of scripture, Luke lets us know that what he's writing is loaded with scriptural allusions. In verse 52, when Jesus sends out those disciples ahead of him, as we said, he describes these, these uh, disciples as angeloi, as angels, or as messengers, and uh, instead of just simply calling them disciples, which is the logical thing to do, that's who they were. And in the, the translation that you have on that sheet, I've, I've even tried to highlight his use of scriptural language by putting quotation marks around part of it and giving scriptural references. Luke is counting on us catching this connection without having to cite the passages. Just by using scripture-like language, he helps us to have the context for understanding what's going on. More specifically, though, he is echoing specific passages. He is echoing God's promise to Moses 
That's part of the ratification of Israel's covenant with God at Mount Sinai. You have there on your sheet a very short quote from Exodus 23, verse 20. Look, God says, I'm sending out my messenger. Very same words that Luke uses, slightly changed in order. Before your face. Usually in, that, in Exodus it's translated, I'm sending out my angel before your face. That he may guard you along the way. That is on the journey to the, to the promised land. Luke repeats and remakes the phrases of Exodus. He uses the language of this promise set in time in the time of Israel at Mount Sinai, just after the Exodus. Remember, though, that in the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, he describes them as talking with Jesus about his coming Exodus in Jerusalem, chapter 9, verse 31. But a major part of the reason that Luke uses this language from Exodus is that long after the Exodus and the giving of the Torah, the prophet Malachi had already echoed these words and interpreted them. Malachi gave them a new interpretation in a time of crisis, long after even the destruction of Solomon's temple and the Babylonian exile. It was a time when Israel was struggling to regain its identity as God's people. He sees that the priests who led the people in the new, newly rebuilt temple were corrupt and destructive as guides for Israel. Notice, I've, again, at the very bottom of the front side of the sheet that, I, that you've gotten, Malachi 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Look, I'm sending out my messenger. Again, the same verbs and so forth, angelos. And he will prepare a way before my face. And suddenly the Lord whom you're seeking will come to his own temple, even the messenger, the angelos, of the covenant whom you desire. Malachi goes on to say, famous passage known probably best from, the, from, the, from Handel's Messiah. Indeed, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who is going to be able to endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Just by using this scriptural language to describe the beginning of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, Luke guides us in understanding what's happening. This is God's promise to guide his people, as in the Exodus. But a lot has happened, just as it already happened in Malachi. Yes, Jesus is sending out messengers ahead of him, the disciples going to a Samaritan village. But ultimately, he himself is the messenger. He himself is preparing the way. He himself is the Lord whom Israel has been seeking, coming to the temple, the temple that belongs to him as the very presence of God. He is the messenger of the covenant that Israel so desires. But the Jerusalem temple, as it stood in Jesus' time, built by the murderous Herod the Great and under the control of the aristocratic Sadducees, led by the high priest Caiaphas, was hardly better than the temple of Malachi's times. Who can endure the day of his coming? For he is like a refiner's fire. Now, 
none of Jesus' followers, as he sets out from Galilee, yet knows that such a confrontation is coming. But by writing the story in scriptural language, Luke lets us, his readers, those of his own time, and then, of course, on down through the centuries, as we've said, right down to us, lets us know. We can reflect on his language and see what's ahead, that it's this very time of crisis that the prophets had long anticipated. But the scripture allusions continue. When a Samaritan village won't welcome Jesus, we know, of course, if you know, if you know any of that history, you know that it reflects the hostile divisions between Jews and Samaritans that we have reflected in, in several passages, the woman at the well that Jesus meets or the, the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan. That, that all of this interaction with the Samaritans back, goes back hundreds of years after the Babylonian exile. At Jesus' disciples, though, as they hear this happening, this Samaritan village not welcoming Jesus, they know what this rejection demands. Notice chapter 9, verses 54 and to 56. When the disciples, James and John, observed this, they said, Lord, is it your desire that we command fire to fall from heaven and destroy them? But he turned and rebuked the disciples. And they all traveled to a different village. Fire from heaven to destroy a village. For people my age, that sounds like napalm in Vietnam or artillery strikes in Ukraine. Again, of course, it's something documented in Scripture, like the punishment on Sidon. I'm, I'm sorry, on Sodom, or the way Elijah call down fire to destroy soldiers who had been sent to arrest him. You can look at the scripture there from 2 Kings 1. It's at the top of the second side of your sheet. The disciples urged Jesus to follow that ancient pattern and to be like Elijah. They, and they are confident that he can do it. Remember, they were there at the glorious transfiguration. They have no, no limits to what they think Jesus can do. But Jesus will have none of it. He will not be Elijah in that sense. He reverses the Elijah pattern. Instead of punishing the Samaritans who, who will not receive him and welcome him, he instead rebukes the two disciples, these two who were among his closest disciples who had been at the, at the transfiguration. No fire from heaven. No punishment for rejection. They simply go on to a different village. And then Luke turns to, includes those accounts of the three new disciples. As we've said, all three are unnamed. We're never told how the stories turn out, how their stories continue, whether, what became of them, whether they ended up going away from Jesus or following him. The emphasis is on Jesus' response to each of the three. As Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, we'd think he'd want as many disciples as possible. We certainly want them, sure, to support him in all that's going to happen. But in all three cases, 
Jesus' response is, shall we say, less than encouraging. Each time his response is expressed in a memorable statement. The first of the three, of course, the, the, the first volunteer disciple seems very enthusiastic. He says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you're going, verse uh, uh, 57. Isn't that just exactly the wholehearted commitment that Jesus wants? I would certainly want to encourage any such readiness to go anywhere with Jesus. We have even songs about that. But Jesus instead cautions him. He, maybe this disciple that's volunteering, has no doubt seen Jesus' life-giving power to heal as a sign of, of God's kingdom. Maybe that's what caused, well, it, it was what caused everybody, and maybe even him, to, to praise and to be astonished that the majesty of God, as Luke described it in our text last week. Luke knows that all of that is very real with Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of the human, as we've translated it often, who in Daniel's vision receives that eternal kingdom and authority. But Jesus also knows that it's important not to think that God's majesty and kingdom, as they are in Jesus, is going to look like human kingdoms and human empires. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to learn to see God's glory, God's power in radically different ways from what you would normally expect when you use those terms, glory and power in an ordinary human context. In ways that are true to God's reality, rather than human domination, and especially human violence. Chapter 9, verse 58. Then Jesus said to him, The foxes have dens, and the birds of the heaven have nests, but the son of the human has nowhere to lay his head. It's not a, not a word of encouragement. <laughs> I don't understand it. Why didn't he say... Oh, I'm so glad that you're, you know, you're wanting to follow me. It's such a wonderful thing, but I just need to, for you to think about certain things. He doesn't even mention that. He just goes straight to this saying, the foxes have dens, the birds of the heavens, heaven have nests, but the son of the human, the son of man, has nowhere to lay his head. The words come to his readers in Luke's time, they come on down to us and they caution us as we look at so much of so-called Christian church history and the way it has gone for glory and power in so many situations or at the dominant values of our society and of the societies all around our world. Notice that Jesus, even though he doesn't encourage, he also doesn't refuse the enthusiastic volunteer. But he does emphatically caution. What are you expecting? What are you expecting as you want to follow the Son of Man, as you want to follow the God's anointed King? Are you open to learn? Does that 
that you say wherever when you say wherever you're going does that include a cross and resurrection following jesus rewrites the entire story of the world and of your own life my own life our own lives the kingdom is real but the nowhere to lay his head is also real. The second and third new disciples, Jesus' responses are more troubling to me than in the case of the first. The third person volunteers to follow Jesus, like that, the one that we've just talked about. But he simply wants to say farewell to the family he's leaving behind. Now, that is a perfectly reasonable and proper request. You have the examples in the Old Testament that are alluded to here. When Elijah called Elisha as a disciple to follow him while he was plowing a field, and notice that Jesus refers to putting the hand on the plow, he allowed him to go back and kiss his mother and father goodbye. 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 20, and it goes on uh, considerably further. It's not only reasonable. I mean, for any of us, I think we think it's the right thing to do. How could Jesus possibly object? Why does he talk about taking the, hat, taking the plow while gazing at the things behind, looking at the things past? In chapter 9, verse 62. But let's go on just a little bit, though. There's that second new disciple. He doesn't volunteer like the other two did. Jesus actually calls him, follow me. But he, too, makes a perfectly reasonable request. Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. Everyone knew the duty to honor your father and mother, and that included a proper burial. How could anyone object? But then, of course, comes Jesus' startling and harsh response. But Jesus said to him, leave it to the dead to bury their own dead. But you, when you go, start proclaiming the kingdom of God. Is this really Jesus? Wow. Many try to come up with ways to soften Jesus' words, but it's hard. I think Luke really wants us to feel their harshness, their shock, even their offensiveness. Now, one could say it does have some of the feel of a, of a command for a particular case or circumstance. Uh, you might think of uh, Jesus telling the rich young man to go and sell everything that he owns and give it to the poor in Mark 10, 21. Maybe something else is going on that elicits this statement. Why is this man traveling with Jesus if his father has just died? Why isn't he with his mother and family? But the gospel tells us none of that. We're just left with Jesus' raw words, seemingly expressed in an especially shocking way leave it to the dead to bury their own dead now, I don't know about you but one way that these words 
have struck me and do still strike me is this. They are words that I would never say to anyone. I just wouldn't. I've sometimes said it, you know, from, especially about this passage. In many ways, I'm a much nicer person than Jesus is here. If you come to counsel with me about becoming a disciple, and you tell me that you need to delay the conversation so as to go to your father's funeral, what would I say? Of course, sure, yes indeed. Go to that funeral, comfort your mother, do whatever you have to do, then come back and we'll talk. You come to me and I'm going to be nice to you. I'll encourage you, even build up your self-esteem. But one thing I won't do, I won't die for you. I can't give you eternal life. I'm not going to be crucified for you. I can't unite you with the life of God. I can't be your Lord. Only Jesus can do that. When Jesus comes into your life, and you see it in so many different ways as you look at the situations in the gospel, but keep this in mind from these passages. Jesus does not come into my life or your life to be nice. He comes as your life-giving Lord. He comes not conquering with force, but healing, restoring life freeing you from powers that oppress you. He comes as the son of the human, the son of man, who receives God's eternal kingdom while having nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't come with an army or with the power of mammon. There's a startling humility about him. But never forget, he is Lord. His call to you takes second place to nothing else. And here in these two stories, the base, very basic things that everybody would have recognized in those days, family ties, your father's burial, not even your own security, nothing else comes first. Because his unique, loving lordship lies at the very heart of everything that exists. It is the heart of the God of all the universe. This is that God coming to you. And as Jesus speaks to both of these people, you can know that that lordship is what he wants them to hear. We don't know their circumstances or what came out of it, but we know that Jesus will not hold back from shocking them by his call. That shock of Nothing else is what Luke wants us to hear and to feel piercing through our souls. Can I become a disciple? Can I follow such a Lord? Shall we take a poll? Can I follow someone who says 
something I would never say to anybody. Because he's radically different than, than I am. Yes, you can. Because he's the one who gives you life in every sense imaginable, from creation all the way through to being united with God. He gives life itself. Now, in my case, I never had to face the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about here. I never had to have a break with family in order to follow Jesus. But I know of people in this congregation who have and who are going that, through that very thing. Some of it's going on very intensely right now. Paul, in Philippians, talks about himself a considerable amount and about the fact that as he became a, a disciple of Jesus, he had to count everything else as loss 